Okay, well, this morning we come to the uh, last sermon in our series on the book of Job. And next week we'll begin uh, our Advent series, which this year will be on Psalm 2. But before um, I get into uh, the, uh, what I'm going to talk about today in Job, I'd like to tell you what I'm not going to um, I'm not going to talk about Elihu. Um, Elihu is a character in the book of Job who is a fourth friend of Job. He, um, he's a young man, so he waits till the others finish speaking. And the three friends in Job argue back and forth. And then in chapter 32, he stands up and he speaks. And he goes on for six interrupted chapters. And then as soon as he's done, God speaks out of the whirlwind and addresses Job directly. And, uh, but in most sermon series on Job, they have a sermon on Elihu. And uh, so here we come to the end and some of you are like, there's this glaring absence of Elihu. Well, I'm not going to take the time this morning to ex explain that in detail, but basically I just, uh, I have it in my notes, so it's already on the website, you can read those, but I just didn't feel uh, certain about the point of Elihu and what he, whether he really, uh, uh, whether he was speaking the truth or whether it was a mixture or, because he's never critiqued in, in the book of Job. Job doesn't say anything to him. God doesn't say anything to him. He's just there. So uh, anyway, I just haven't studied en enough to feel comfortable talking about Job. So in case you wondered what was going on, that's, uh, that was what was going on. Now, um, Job is a hard book. And it's no wonder that uh, it's not most Christians' favorite book in the Bible. It's hard for a number of reasons. It's hard because it's a long book, 42 chapters. It's hard because it deals with a hard subject, the subject of suffering. And even reading the story is, is hard in terms of the, the suffering that he goes through. It's also hard because it doesn't answer the questions that we'd like to be answered. And the answers it gives are often answers that are hard themselves. Answers that we don't necessarily want to hear. The book is also hard to read because it's a dialogue between Job and his friends, mostly. It's not easy to follow and not easy to understand. And it's very repet repetitious. And Job and his friends, they go on and on, arguing back and forth and never giving an inch to each other, never learning anything from each other. And in the end, it seems like no progress has been made. And uh, because Job and his three friends all sort of get corrected at the end, it's not easy to know how we should be evaluating the things that they say. Because it's such mixed truth and error. Job is also 95% poetry, 
which is very challenging because it involves artistic features and Hebrew parallelism and metaphors and similes, and that makes it hard. It's also hard because of the vast cultural and historical distance between the writing of Job and us today. But as we've seen over and over again in, in as our approach to scripture, the most precious jewels are found in the deepest minds. And this is certainly true about Job. And there have been many precious lessons that we've learned. And it shows us that the, the Bible does not avoid the hard things. And uh, doesn't paint a rosy, easy picture of life. But it does give us the best things. The most beautiful things. And I want to review just some of the lessons that we can learn from the story of Job before we get into this final lesson today. The first, and I'm not going to do it in any kind of order, and some of these we've never, haven't even talked about. I just found this a convenient way to stick them in so that they didn't get unmentioned in this series. Job teaches us that sometimes God will, as the hymn says, allow all hell to endeavor to shake his little children. It teaches us that sometimes God will allow us to feel like he's absent and silent. But it also teaches us that even in those times when God seems silent, that God is very much present and listening the whole time. Even though it seems like our cries are not being heard. Job teaches us that suffering isn't always punitive. Job is where it begins. This the concept of God's people that can, can suffer and it be for their good. It begins to dawn on us in the book of Job. That God blesses us sometimes. That Satan might mean it for evil, but God means it for good. Job teaches us that sometimes God allows even the most righteous to suffer more than even others. It teaches us that sometimes God is pleased with very imperfect people. At the beginning, God brags about Job to Satan. And then at the end, God vindicates Job and rewards Job. Though Job is clearly a very imperfect man. Job also teaches us that even righteous people can have a lot of wrong ideas. Job teaches us that there's a spiritual world which is invisible to us. And that in this world, God uses his children on earth to prove his points. To prove his truth. To show his power. This means that our lives are cosmically and eternally meaningful. 
not just to the people around us. Job teaches us that every once in a while, God's child needs a really strong rebuke. Job teaches us that the true adversary of God's child is not God, as he often perceives. And yet, Job also teaches us that Satan only does what God in his goodness allows him to do. Well, to finish our series on the book of Job, we're going to go back to the beginning. Where I believe we're going to learn the biggest lesson of Job of all. Back to Job chapter 1. This is after Satan's conversation with God in the heavenly places about Job. And where God gives him permission to strike Job. And then it happens in Job 1, 13 to 22. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. I would suggest that the biggest lesson of all in the book of Job is that it teaches us to say yes to God. As we've just read at first, Job said yes to God, even though He lost his children and his servants and his wealth. Job worshipped God. He he gave God permission to do his will in his life. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Similar to Jesus In the garden, not my will, but thine be done. In his early worship and acceptance of God's will, Job shows us what is possible by faith. 
But as time wore on, though he continued his faith, and as we've seen, had a number of precious declarations of faith in the midst of the struggle, Job's attitude began to sour. When physical suffering was added to his loss of family and wealth, and then the pain of having his close friends, instead of rallying around him to support him, turning against him and insulting him and accusing him falsely, and then when the element of time was also thrown in, the weight of it all became hard for Job to bear. And though he never denied the Lord and never ran away from him, he certainly lost the exemplary attitude that he had at first. And this shows us how fragile and, and, and uh, breakable even the strongest faith can be. How easily wearied faith can be. How quickly eroded by unalleviated pain. Of course, as we consider Job's failures, we need to remember that Job didn't have the resources that we have today. We have the book of Job, for instance. He did not. We have a whole Bible full of great stories and promises. Surely Job would have done better if he knew about the exceeding and eternal weight of glory that far outshines the sufferings of this present world. And think about how Job could have trusted God if he had knowledge of Christ and of the cross. Think of what, would have, what it would have been like for Job if he knew of Romans 8, 35 to 40. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution... Famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And really the lesson of Job is like that passage in embryonic form. A lesson for us. But at the end, Job seems to regain his attitude of saying, being able to say yes to God. How do we know this? Well, we see in his dialogue with his friends how he repeatedly and constantly defends himself. But when God rebukes him at the end, there is not a shred of defensiveness, but only I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. This reminds us of his initial response to the tragedy. It seems he has recovered that spirit of humility he has recovered that spirit of yes before the Lord. So we learn from Job's good example 
to say yes to God even when things go very wrong. And then we learn from his failures and his repentance to say yes to God even when the struggle is unrelenting. It just keeps getting worse. The lesson of the whole book is that God's people ought to say yes to God even when he gives them tough assignments, even when he leads them through the valley of the shadow of death, even when it gets worse than we feel like we can bear. Even in severe suffering, God can be trusted in his goodness, in his perfect wisdom, in his love for his little ones, in his faithfulness to them, even in trial. God gives us the precious story of Job to equip us to hold fast in faith, even in the face of storms which batter us and frighten us. For just as Job had no idea of the tragedy and calamity which were about to befall him, so we have no idea as to the circumstances which await us in the future. Job has been one of the greatest resources and treasures for God's people down through the ages as God has used it to equip us to face our challenges and our obstacles. One of the people who needed this kind of encouragement in facing challenges was the Virgin Mary. It was very likely that Mary herself benefited from Job's example of saying yes to God. Next week is the beginning of Advent, as I mentioned. And at this point, I'd like to introduce a sort of transition between Job and Advent by playing a little song for you by Bob Frankie. It's a song to Mary, urging her to say yes to God when God calls her through the angel Gabriel to be the mother of Jesus. Let's listen to the song. When you're tired and you're hungry and you're poor 
When you're in pain In a room without a door And when the angel returns And asks for more Say yes Pain full of grace The Lord is with you Worlds without end Depend on you Blessed is the one Whom you bring forth Whom no one else can bring And when the legions of angels Call you blessed Say yes And were you faithful In each and every test Say yes When they ask you in story and in song Were you upheld and protected all along And did the power of the Spirit keep you strong Say yes For those of you who remember the song we used to sing, uh, The Great Storm is Over, written by the same man. So, I would like to urge you, as we draw our series on Job to a conclusion, to say yes to God. The book of Job calls us to say yes to God, no matter what, no matter how scary, no matter how painful, no matter how disruptive that choice is. Always say yes. Say yes and keep saying yes. Say yes even when it feels like saying yes is actually making things worse. Say yes even when it looks like yes is going to kill you. Say yes even when it seems like saying yes to God is saying no to happiness to security, or even to life itself. Job says to say yes. Say yes to his discipline. Say yes to his will. Say yes to his commandments. Say yes to his assignments. As I was considering these things this week in my preparations, God convicted me of one pretty obvious application of this which I think most of us American Christians are quite oblivious to a way in which many of us refuse to say yes to God but don't even realize it and one that is growing in its power over our culture and over us It occurred to me that when Job was saying yes to God, when he tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped, and when he said the Lord is given, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. When he did this, 
He wasn't just saying yes to a command or to an assignment. He was saying yes to the world as God had now called him to live in it. For him, a childless world. A world of poverty. A world of loss. A world of memories without reality. I mean, think about what life looked like at that moment for Job when he fell on his knees compared to what he had enjoyed just the day before. The only one he had left was his wife and she was just rubbing salt in his wounds. But he didn't despair. He worshipped. He was willing to face this new world and serve God in it. And like Job, we also need to say yes to the broken world where God has planted us all in different parts of it. You know, one way that we don't say yes to his call to live in this broken world is by living in fantasy worlds instead. In our society today, we have the time, the resources, the technology to turn, to, to create alternative worlds where our fictional worlds and for our minds to live in those worlds much of the time. Video games, TV shows, movies, Surfing the internet, novels, sports, fantasy sports, which isn't even real sports. It's fantasy, fantasy. Pornography. In our world today, this has become big business. So if we want an escape from the unpleasantness of the world around us, there's plenty. There's a whole buffet of alternative realities, fictional worlds we can give ourselves to and avoid thinking about the hardships of our real lives. And this is not only socially acceptable, it is expected and encouraged. It's just a part of being an American today. And so often it seems like those fantasy worlds are much more interesting and more exciting and more engaging and less threatening than the real world we actually live in. Now there was a time when the Christian church opposed things like this, opposed novels and shows and fiction. Partly because of this concern. And that view, I think, has rightly been discarded. Fiction is not inherently evil. God gave us an imagination. But fiction can be used for evil. And one way it can be used for evil is by using fiction as a means of avoiding the difficulty of real life. 
it's so tempting to escape from the place God has assigned us because of its unpleasantness instead of trusting him to be with us and trusting him that he made our world around us just the way we need it to be. It's handcrafted just for us, our families, our work, our home, our neighborhood. It's all there just the way God wants it to be for us. But how many of us have more of our heart invested in fictional characters on TV or in a novel or in a video game than we do in the real flesh and blood neighbors who live on our street? How many of us spend a significant amount of time virtually every day immersed in some fictional world? And meanwhile, what real life responsibilities are being neglected in the process? And this has a lot to do with our relationship with Christ. We don't draw near to Christ unless we feel our need for him. And when we're facing real burdens and responsibilities in the real world, when we're letting ourselves be confronted by the need and the pain and the struggle of the people around us, when we're trying to serve them and minister to them in Christ's love, then it's pretty easy to discern our need for Christ. But we don't need Christ to live in a fantasy world. There might be times of suspense and, and apparent dangers, but you don't cry out to the Lord to help you in the face of fictional dangers. So living in a fantasy world not only eats up a lot of time, it suppresses our sense of need for Christ. James 1.27 tells us that Religion which is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Hebrews 13, 2 and 3 tells us, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers and remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. It is sure easier to watch TV or play video games than it is or surf the internet than it is to visit widows and orphans in their affliction or to show hospitality to strangers or to remember those who are in prison. It's just so easy. And I don't mean, of course, to imply that all of us are guilty of this, but it's something that is rife in our culture, which is so easy for us to fall into. And it damages our relationship with Christ and it damages our witness in this world. And I think in many, it's a way that many of us fail to say yes to God, to say yes to the world as he made it right around us, the real world. Part of saying yes to God in our present world is to say yes to his call 
to trust him and to serve him in this broken, needy world. God help us. I want to end with what Jesus said in Matthew 25, which I think um, ought to be our, our aspiration to hear this from his lips. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the story of Job. We thank you for the man Job. We thank you for how he was a model himself of living in the world as you placed it around him and serving and loving and sacrificing for the people that you put around him. And Lord, what an example he is of, uh, to us of, of faith, even in trouble. Oh Lord, help us for we are, it, it's so accessible to us, Lord. Escapes. And Lord, it's so easy to avoid facing hard things and not thinking about the things that we need to be praying about and searching our minds and searching your word to have the wisdom to know how to face them. I ask your forgiveness, O Lord, for the ways that I have given into this myself. Pray that you would help us. Pray that you would fix our eyes on Jesus and not give in to something in our culture which seems so okay and expected and yet pulls us away from you. Now, Lord, as we come to the table where you have called us to come, we are confident in your forgiveness for we celebrate the cross knowing that Jesus took the blame for our sin, that our sins, even these sins we've been talking about, have been nailed to the cross. But dear Lord, as we come, we also acknowledge our great need for your help to break unhealthy patterns in our lives to keep our eyes on you, to trust you, that you have put us where and when we're supposed to be. And to make the most of every day of our lives. Oh Lord, fill us 
Empower us, for by it, on our own, Lord, we'll just keep choosing the easier path. Shake us, if, it, if you must, O Lord, and wake us if we're asleep. We pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.